I take offense even to the notion of a music service called SoundCloud. How indiscriminate, how vaporous, how transitory. We made discrete sound objects more like a sound Fabergé egg. Or even a concentrated experience of musical power. A sound bolt, if you will. A sound thunderbolt. Hi, welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And Introducing, on Master Controls, it's Glenn Johns. Glenn Johns! One of the most respected rock and roll producers of the 20th century, Glenn helped create career-defining albums for groups ranging from the Beatles to Band of Horses, witnessing countless moments of rock and roll debauchery all while stone-cold sober. (laughs) Today we'll be discussing him through his book, Sound Man. Sound Man. Waiting in the sky. Waiting in the booth. Ready to come down and craft a perfect record. I'm a sound man. Do 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 do. Are you a sound man, Molly? Yeah. No. Uh. Ah. Yeah. Yup. I love them. It sounds like you've got. (laughs) I love sounds. It sounds like you've got conflicted feelings towards sounds. Well, after reading this book, there are sound men and women, and then there's. Glenn Johns, who is on another level. He is a master sound a craftsman. It is his job in, in other memoirs we've read where, you know, the studio experience is long and slogging and all the artist seems to care about is when they can next find their pile of cocaine. Uh, Glenn Johns is the one who's twiddling the knobs and trying to make everything sound good and getting annoyed with you for uh, getting distracted and thinking about cocaine. Locking all these snotty teenagers into a room while he twiddles all the knobs. Yes. So we've covered a lot of musicians, and this is the first like producer, producer. we've done. Yeah, so far we saw you know uh, uh, our friend, um, our friend from Chic, I guess also. Oh counts. yes, yes, but yes. The, yeah, this this He's guy a musician turned producer. Yeah, this guy is a producer and engineer uh, first and foremost. Did you know anything about Glenn Johns before I you knew read this book? Jack shit about Glenn Johns and didn't even know this book existed until our uh, friend of Pod Matthew Perpetua gave us this this book. Um, I also had not heard this name, maybe in passing. Uh, I am generally aware of the uh, class of sound professionals that grew up in these various scenes yeah. as uh, as bands and, and rock music be- went from, you know, something people were doing in clubs to a huge industry. Right. Uh, but I had not heard of this guy in particular. So I'm excited to go in cold and see what we learn. Yes. And he, I mean, I think... He has a profession that it might be a little too esoteric for even more enthusiastic music fans, but because he had total presence of mind when he was dealing with these flighty, <laughs> flippant rock stars, because he doesn't do any kinds of drugs stronger than aspirin, as he says, um, which, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes. That's a bit that's a bit crazy. Some might say puritanical. Yes. Um, so he he's able to experience these moments with total, total clarity of mind. Uh, I'm good memory. It seems I'm really interested in this one uh, because I think that rock and roll as much as is the story of people and music and culture is also a story of technology. Yes. And I think that this will be a good app to get in on that. Even as much as I was disparaging my former uh, college professor who seemed to be enamored with rock and roll only as a story of maximizing technology and and complexity. Well, that's no fun, but Still, the way the music is actually technically recorded has a tremendous impact in what the music is and sounds like and even how songs are built and arranged and things like that. So uh, and that is the realm 
of the producer. The producer. So uh, give me give me a top down look at, at this guy's <gasps> personality going in. What can we expect from this? OK, uh, Glenn Johns. So he starts the book and he explains what a record producer does, because I realize this might not be clear to some people. And I don't think it has been clear to me for some time. Um, he basically says you just have to have an opinion and the ego to express it more convincingly than anyone else. Wow. So I think that's pretty good definition. That's uh, some pretty incredible advice because uh, I think the added element of ego in there is is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. You direct videos. Uh, I direct videos. I produce podcasts. I usually try to think of my job as getting the maximum amount of control and while uh, exerting the least amount of of movement around any of the the actual creative parts. Yes, that sounds right. Uh, I think, you know, it seems like with these situations, there's a lot of people in the room and being the one who's like, we're going to do it that way. Yes. And he does that a lot. Um, And if you trust someone to make things sound good and they say, we're going to do it this way. And you say, okay, Glenn, let's do it. Uh, (laughs) Glenn was born on February 15th in Surrey in England. Surrey. Surrey is out near London, but not in London. I always get a bit confused with these uh, like London suburbs. Oh, that yeah, are there's kind of two parts towns. of England, which is Londonish and England. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, he joined his church choir at the age of eight, um, and he immediately fell in love with, you know, the sort of layered sounds. Uh, that come forth, burst forth. Those Handelian ascending and descending harmonies. Yeah, those hallelujahs. <laughs> they get, they got them. Gotta um, get those sweet uh, contra harmonos hallelujahs. Yeah, that's a good hallelujah. Um, a cold and br- broken hallelujah, perhaps. <laughs> I don't think that would attract you to music, um, but the good ones do. He d- he tells <laughs> he tells you how to make a homemade bass out of a tea crate. Okay, uh, do you know what a tea advice. crate is? No, it's I a, assume it's a big wooden hollow crate used for carrying tea. Yeah, that's, it's what that's our right. founding fathers threw into the Boston Harbor. Yes. When they were all pissed be, uh, by their import duties being 1% higher. And so they had to start a new nation. Well, yeah, right. And um, Glenn is like, that's that's bullshit. You should have done that. Um, you should have just made bases <laughs> instead. I just rocked out so hard on the low end. Wonder, that you just <laughs> tremored the, the British away. Instead of the Boston Tea Party, it was Inven- the Boston Bass Jam. <laughs> Inventing rock and roll good two hundred years earlier than it would have been. The Boston bass solo. Yeah. The the er the er bass solo. Yeah. To the bass solo heard around the world. Yeah. Bass slap heard around the world. <laughs> that sounds way better than what actually happened. Um you he so he actually literally he makes himself a bass when he's like a kid and he joins a band and he, you know, gigs around town and he plays at these they're like meetups, like, you know, just like he's he takes care to differentiate it from gang activity, <laughs> which I'm like, uh, okay, just because you're a group of youngins doesn't mean you you are flying colors. Like, yes, I, I feel like <laughs> it's okay, Glenn. It's fine. I, I feel like at this time and like this is like what late 40s, early 50s. Uh, early. He was born in 42, so yeah, this so, is like yeah, mid 50s. Mid 50s. So I, a, I assume that this is the same like skiffle scene. Uh, that the Beatles were part of if he's making like homemade bases and touring around with them. Yeah. Uh, which D-D-I-Y. is always funny to me of 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 post-war British teenagers getting really into 
like American jug band music. Yes, because they don't like yeah. they're the first generation that doesn't immediately have to go like drive a tank as soon as they hit the age of hit the of age maturity. of maturity and, yeah. like, defi- and defend your traditional European empires. Right. Yes. You may just get to like sit around and chill and like yeah. make make instruments and jam. Like that's cool. Yeah. Uh, but I also assume that during this time, the line between uh, knife wielding gang member and jug band player is kind of razor theme. Yeah, yeah. I think any large group of teens could inspire fear in uh, adults at this time of just being like, what are they doing? Yeah. It's like at the end of the stick in the uh, washtub base, he just overturns the washtub and there's a spear tip on it. Yeah, yeah. He goes and and rumbles with the the proto-mods. He says that these meetups that they hang and jam at Boys would turn up on their track bikes and girls on their horses or on foot. So, like, you know, it's a horse gang, too. Horse Because you just you just have them. You just have one. A horse. Again, reinforcing the idea that England was basically like the Hobbit in the Shire uh, until 1963. Yeah, that's that's legit. Um, he Glenn didn't have any idea what he wanted to do with his life. Whom does? Uh, but he graduates from high school and he basically ends up working at this like renowned independent recording studio called IBC. This is thanks to his sister randomly talking to her boss's girlfriend that like, oh, my brother likes music. And then somehow this got around to like recommending that he apprentice as an engineer this at is, this recording studio. This is the same like, Great. semi-frustrating opening salvo as the Jimmy Iovine story. Yeah. Where... He just happens to get a job janitoring at a studio and then and then like through passion and hard work moves up through it. But it's still that one open door. Yes. That is the uh, the like kind of shrug like I I just kept found myself surrendered by recording gear. What was I going to (laughs) do? Yes. Uh, Yeah. As opposed to. Well, I feel like now it's just the idea of like a kid who has zero experience in a trade getting a job in that trade yeah. is weirdly absurd and unheard of. Like now he would have to have 50,000 Instagram followers and be like the kid producer at the kid producer yeah. before he gets hired by anyone to actually make music. Yeah, you have to un- unpaid intern at the music studio for a year and a half before you get the first paid janitorial job. Right, right, right. Um, he is treated, he's basically like hazed by the other employees there. He's treated as an unpleasant smell, as he says. <laughs> um, he works with, uh, he's like an apprentice engineer and then becomes like an assistant engineer. All, all the uh, other employees who are, of course, in a audio engineer gang. Uh, yes, right. A professional gang. A gang of audio engineer toughs. Um, he says he like learns the craft and he works with this classical music engineer called David Price, who he refers to as an unpleasant shit of a man. <laughs> this is a, like a common practice in this book of just being he I think in other memoirs, people soften their criticism or don't bother to call out someone for being a dick. But uh, Glenn Johns does. That's he remembers great. every asshole he's ever met in his <laughs> life and he calls him out by name. I'm just yes. being like, you, you suck. Well, I would also guess that close to 60 years later, there's not much risk in starting shit with a audio, a classical music engineer from the uh, late 1950s. So he's, and he's probably the, deceased as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, Glenn Johns gives zero fucks, which is kind of, it's kind of nice, but he gives zero fucks in a very British way. Yes. He also is working with producers who quote, throw a wobbly. If anything (laughs) is not arranged to their liking, a a wobbly is a fit. I believe. Yes. I would assume throwing a wobbly. Uh, 
Glenn works all night one night uh, and then falls asleep during a session the next day. And he awakens to a swift belt round the ear from the unpleasant shit of a man, David Price. God. He's just literally getting slapped at work. <laughs> That's true. But everything that he says <laughs> sounds like a joke. Yes. Yes. It's all tempered in this weird, yeah. like quaint way. Um, but he Bobby felt me swiftly about my ears. <laughs> he, um, the crazy thing is, that he's allowed to use the studio on weekends for whatever he wants. Of course, sure. Because no one is willing, no other engineers are willing to work on the weekends. So even if an artist would want to do it, they're mm-hmm. like, no, 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 I don't, I don't feel like it. Like I don't work then. Can you imagine yeah. setting a boundary about work? Oh my God. It's crazy. <sighs> uh, but that was done. And thus uh, Glenn made these Sunday sessions where, you know, local, local artists can record whatever they want to. Uh, Jamie Page shows up. Sure. Because before Jamie he's Page anybody, is right? like, before he's anybody, but like he went to a talent show that Jamie Page played at and noticed him being really good at guitar and was like, this guy could could really be something someday. And turns out he yeah. he, he done did. If you keep, if you keep up with it. Um, his, Glenn Johns' first gig as the lead engineer uh, is a was a live recording of a theatrical staging of the Battle of Trafalgar. Yes, with voice work from Laurence Olivier. Wow, that sounds great! But how would they get all those uh, boats into the recording studio? <laughs> I don't know. He get, he did like a speech, Laurence Olivier. So that was like a crazy thing because someone oh Laurence wanted to work on a Saturday. And no one else would do it. So he got to be the lead engineer. At the same time, he moves in with Ian Stewart of the Rolling Stones. Okay. He's just around. He's like 22 at this point and is like, I need to move away from home. Like I still live with my parents. Sure. And uh, so Ian Stewart, I'm not, I wasn't like, I'm not in depthly familiar with the Rolling Stones career, but Ian Stewart is a founding member mm-hmm. of the Rolling Stones gets booted by their eventual producer and manager, Andrew Oldham. Sure. And then comes back as like a semi piano man and road manager. Okay. That's Ian Stewart's relationship with Rolling Stones. Just to just explain. So he's in the original like Brian Jones crew. Yes. Um, and uh, Glenn Johns works with Rolling Stones for the first 13 years of their career, which is pretty insane. Okay. So he's really, they're really grown up with him. They, yeah, they're pretty, they are day ones as they say. Um, He tries to get them a record deal uh, with him producing. And then they end up with Andrew Oldham, who like kind of steals them a little bit. And he says, my my opinion of Andrew was that he had no idea what he was doing and was riding his luck with the stones. Um, And then later, his opinion of his producing style softens. But because Andrew at one point needs gripped onto those coattails. Yeah. uh, He needs a last minute engineer. And Glenn is like, no. And then the. Andrew's secretary is like, please. And he's like, no. And she's like, please, please. And he's like, okay, fine. And then he has a good time working with them and spends a long time with the Rolling Stones. See, Glenn, when you just open your heart and let uh, and trust your colleagues, you can really get a little further. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Although um, I, I, I would guess that his uh, shit talking hard ass ways are going to get him a lot farther <laughs> in the end. Yeah. He just doesn't, he just doesn't care. Um, Glenn's secret ambition is to be a singer himself, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know if that's the secret ambition of all record producers. Uh, is yeah, to also is to get in, get in front of the mic, be the star. So he he has a couple attempts at trying to record singles um, that don't go anywhere. But once he starts 
producing or engineering the Rolling Stones. He records a version of the song Lady Jane, which is by Jagger and Richards. They The Stones releases too, but he somehow manages to release a cover in Spain. <laughs> and then a couple months later, the Rolling Stones do a publicity tour in Spain. Glenn Johns comes along only to find out that like people are taking pictures of him and girls are like clamoring for him as well as the Rolling Stones. And it turns out that that song was number one in Spain. Uh-huh. Um, Do you want to hear only, a little bit? Yeah, of, can you please play it? Lady Jane by Glenn Johns? Yes. Love to have a shocking number one record in Spain. So random. Love that uh, early 60s exoticism. For exoticism's sake. My sweet lady Jane When I see you again <laughs> Ooh, Lynn. Your servant am I And will humbly remain <laughs> Alright, well the production is good But you kind of sound Just like uh, Some kind of uh, Dour uh, Cyrano de Bergerac fi- figure Pining in, in a 19, 18th century courtyard. Yes. After somebody. Yes. It's a, it's a little too courtly of a voice. It's courtly. It's courtly for sure. There's just not a lot of like rock star like looseness. Yeah. It's very choir boy in a way. I mean, maybe in two more decades when Morrissey will take that and turn it up to 11. Yeah. And do those kind of begging, pleading boy in the shadows type voices. But make it, you know, both sexy and asexual at the same time. Yeah. Right now he's kind of neither. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> um, Glenn Johns also explains the, he gives like an overview of the change in what producing even means mm-hmm. by the early 60s. So here's how it works, or worked. Record companies had uh, A&R men who were basically also producers. So they were the ones who found musicians and were like, this is how shit is going to sound. Yes. And then there were engineers to make to execute that actually vision. sound the way. But then so A&R men have always been, even back in the sixties, basically like brand managers, like yes. finding a group and being like, not only will you guys exist as a group, yes. but this is the way that you should present yourself. And the whole thing should come off like this. Yeah. Just like overall directors. And then engineers help set up and execute that vision. That vision. Correct. Um, and then the rise of singer songwriters meant that like A&R didn't have quite as much of a hand in the actual like shaping of the songs. Mm -hmm. And so they just became the people who found the talent and, you know, made them happy. And then independent producers helped do the actual music and then independent engineers worked with them. Right. So that's the kind of shifting landscape. That so, the, he, so this is basically a new in. role that he is coming up into. Yeah. Which he's like perfect for. Cause I don't think he's much of a like company man. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, I just want to make stuff for people. And yes. I don't really care who like, I'll just work whatever. He's a gun for hire. Yes. Um, by, by disposition. Yes. He says the music business in the early sixties was a bit like the wild west. Every day was spent zigzagging and ducking, trying to avoid the unsavory individuals that the business was littered with. (laughs) It's that thing we were talking about in the Joe Perry episode that it's like rife for basically having being a mob infestation. Yes. Speaking of Glenn uh, insults a manager, uh, a certain manager like behind his back. He hears an artist saying that she's going to work with him and he's like, don't work with him. Like he's not. He's not pleasant. He's on the shitty 60s music man list. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and this guy, I guess, I guess, found out. 
two dudes were sent to put Glenn in a car and point a sawed off shotgun at his face. Oh my God. And be like, you're going to meet with our boss <laughs> or else. And Glenn's response was, I nervously suggested that he put the gun away because he clearly was not going to use it in his car as it would make quite a mess. Ah! Um, so he's like, he's chill under pressure. Uh, more hijinks you one night. Wa- you wouldn't want to get brain all over this nice new upholstery, would you? As we've seen from Pulp Fiction, cleaning a car yeah. when yeah. someone gets shot in it is a whole, it's a whole thing. Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction was a tutorial. <laughs> yeah, it was a tutorial video. <laughs> you can search on YouTube yeah. how, to, how to deal. And the answer is call in a, a deus ex machina. Yeah, call, call, yes, call in a professional fixer. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a good advice, honestly. Get, out, get, get some kind of Ray Donovan up in that shit. More hijinks one night recording with the Rolling Stones. Everyone's indiscriminately smoking pot, with the exception, of course, of our, our dear sober Glenn. Uh, just popping aspirins. Just popping aspirins like crazy. Two cops just come into the studio. They like were on their, do Bobbies, excuse me. The Bobbies were on their beat, mm-hmm. and then they see the studio and somehow like wander inside of it and then like get close to the booth, and that's insane. And everyone's nervous, like, you know, oh my God, they're going to arrest all of us for this ambient pot smoke. You got a nice rock and roll band in there. It would be a real shame if something was to happen to you. <laughs> um, they, somehow the band and the recording people collectively charm the cops into watching the recording and they use their nightsticks for percussion on Let's Spend the Night Together. Oh my God. Which I guess they left in the original mix. Should we, should we try to hear if we can yeah. hear some of those nightstick cops? I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be possible, but that's a great play of just being like, uh, that's don't arrest us here. It's like um, Superman? it's like Anthony Kiedis putting uh, his his drug dealer in one of his songs so he wouldn't have to like pay him actual money. I don't know. Still got that nice stick in there. I don't know what the diameter of the nice the nightstick was at this time, but it still has that nice snappy snare tone to me. So I I don't really hear the thud that I would expect. The song rules. It's just funny that I feel like the Stones were talked about as like the sloppier band, the Mm -hmm. sloppier counterpart to the Beatles, but like Glenn Johns doesn't seem sloppy like yeah. he just more creates the conditions for sloppiness to exist in yeah but then like steps back well maybe the sloppiness is uh, almost intentional then yeah anyway that seems like a uh, a scene from a seth rogan movie where like the cops bust in and then it does a smash cut and the cops are smoking pot yes cop that starts is. break dancing <laughs> um the stones play in athens the night before a coup and Glenn noticed that like the atmosphere at the arena is like really strange. There's a portion of the concert where Mick is throwing hey, flowers. Man, does, it, does it seem a little cooey out there too? You? <laughs> you get a distinct sense of civil unrest. L- licks your finger and puts it to the sky. Mm, this is, that's a coup breeze right there. My my knees acting up. <laughs> Probably going to be a coup in the next week or so. Um, there's a part of their concert where. Mick throws flowers from a basket into the crowd, but they're set weirdly back from the crowd. So they send like an emissary, a member of their crew with the basket to run up to the crowd to throw flowers kind of on Mick's behalf. And before they can even make it to the crowd, 
this guy gets tackled by the cops. Oh my God. And then Glenn sees it and like runs out to try to like help this guy and also gets tackled by the cops. And both of them get just straight up thrown out of the arena. And then I guess the crowd goes wild. And then the next night there's a coup. So Uh, I like that for being a seemingly a very uh, formal, uh, grumpy, sober British man. This guy (laughs) has seen more police violence enacted on him than most of our other uh, interviewee or subjects. He's ready to throw down. Yes. Um, He also, by the way, at at a certain point around this time, he gets married and has kids. Okay. He doesn't say anything about this. His wife or kids. He managed, he met, he mentioned them in passing, um, but this memoir is solely about his work, which maybe says something about him in general. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, there's a wife and kids. And at one point there's some anecdote about trying to buy a house and it's not as nice of a house as a rock star that he's working with. Oh, sure. But, Very uh, relatable. His personal life is not really a factor in this at mm-hmm. all, um, which I find kind of funny, but he then, so this is, it becomes like the late sixties. He works with the Steve Miller band, Steve Miller band, the Steve Miller band, the, not just a Steve Miller band. The Steve, the Miller, Steve band. Miller band. Um, so they're all they're American. They all get arrested for importing drugs into the country. Like the night after they come into London to record with him because one of their friends mailed them hash in a fruitcake because they <laughs> thought that they were going to have trouble buying drugs when they were in London. Like, yeah. And they're like, the dogs will never see this. And they'll, ne- they'll never see the smell this coming. And then so Glenn has to, like bail them out of jail um, and like vouch for them as like a member of the community. A lot of there's cop a lot interaction. There's a lot of cop interaction. I think the cops, especially in England, seem to be like super hyper about trying to catch musicians w- doing the bad things. Do, doing the pot. Yeah, doing all the pots. One pot equals one Bobby. <laughs> one, one pot equals one one negative credit in life. Yes. Every time you do one pot. So this is their first album. Is um, do you want to pull up something from Children of the Future? A lot of like. Weirdly, Steve Miller worked as a janitor at a music studio in Texas before he... It's the only way to break into the music business is janitoring in Texas, or sweep, janitoring in a music Sweep studio. the floors. Stepping stone. Yeah, it's moving away from the rawer sound of those earlier 60s records. Things are getting, they're about to get noodly. They're about to get noodly? Yeah. Just in uh, life. Well, this is more of almost like a soul sound to it, right? Yes. Crunchy guitar solo, yeah. Good tone, great tone on that great guitar. Tone. Just a fa- just a fantastic tone. It's a warm whale. You know this guy is biting so much lower lip doing this. All the lower lips. I guess like a I guess this was more use of wah pedal, like not too much. He's not going crazy. He's just giving a little, like five percent, ten percent. Just a little wah, a little wah. Good. I, like I guess I like they it. got less psychedelic as 
they progressed. Yeah. And like tightened it, just got a little Just got tighter. a little tighter. Um, but a I don't know. A sillier until they got to the Joker. They were like, all right, that's it. That's perfect right yeah. there. Uh, he, you know what? I am a midnight Joker. <laughs> that really, that, that just represents me and who I am. Glenn said that like Steve working with them was obviously just a little bit, you know, funky with the amount of drugs that they were doing or whatever. Like their second album, The Sailor, was supposed to be a concept album of about a sailor. And he said that Steve Miller like explained to him the whole thing and he was like, I don't really know what you're talking about. But why, <laughs> why don't we just get in the studio and like no, try to it's work like, out? I, so Steve no Steve Miller's from Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he's American. No, no, it's like how our entire life is just on one big voyage on and you host hoist the sail up in the what about the spiritual the rudder? Sky winds come through, and that's like when the guitar hits it. <laughs> it's like right, but um, so like, what instruments do you want? What, on what is it? What was it all about? Actually, yes. What well, should I put this microphone? <laughs> well, yeah, the thing is, he he doesn't he won't ask. He'll be like, "That's cool. I'm gonna put the microphone here, and you just <laughs> you just figure it out." Um, he records with Led Zeppelin. He his old uh, childhood buddy old, uh, Jimmy. Oh, it's you from it's you from the talent show. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad things turned out well for you. Right. Um. And so that's for their their self titled, uh, album. He said all I had to do was press record, sit back, and try to contain the excitement of being in the same room with what was going on. Wow. Yeah. Uh, from a guy who's like clearly very on top of his shit, that is a very telling statement about how much raw talent was in the uh, Led Zeppelin. Yes, and I think he he probably I think the moments he appreciates the most are not when he has to wrangle anyone or mm-hmm. try to like you know pull teeth, clarifying their vision of just being like, oh, you're really good, and it's my job to get this down on uh, on tape. I mean, speaking of that, just like the. The good, the some of the good, good sounds on this first record. Yeah, let's get it. Just that deep, almost dubby bass tone. Been days Thumping out of the abyss and the ephemeral guitar. Mm-hmm. I've, I've always liked this song. I love this song. Lots of people talking, few of them. And when it kicks in and just how huge it gets. Let's go to some of the trippy stuff at the end. (laughs) It's certainly a vibe, isn't it? It's a vibe. Does he have anything to say about uh, what's going on with Zeppelin at this time, what they were like to work with? Just were, really good musicians. N- nice boys who like guitar. Yeah, basically. Um, he also, it's because of John Bonham being so good at drumming that he figured out his like signature drum recording yes. technique. Yes, okay, so this is the one thing I knew about him when I was doing a little preliminary thing, is that uh-huh. if you like Google Glenn Johns or YouTube Glenn Johns, it's like a billion things that say... Glenn John's drum technique. Glenn yes. Dr- John's drum mic. Yes. Did he like invent the setup for he miking a drum? I think he might have. So I'm going to try, I'll try to condense this, but also just like describe the level of detail. Great. Well, we've got three more minutes of Days and Confused. So. Yeah. Let it rip. Um, 
He said, I usually use three or four mics on drums, one over the top, one on the floor, tom-tom, one on the bass drum, and one on the snare, which I rarely use. Because we were always limited to the number of tracks available back in those days, drums would be recorded on one track, and depending on the session, sometimes with the bass mixed with them. Uh, we had finished with the basic track and decided to overdub an acoustic guitar on it. Uh, I took one of the Newman U67s, is that a mic type? I assume. That I had been using on the drums to use on the guitar, and having finished the overdub, I put it back on the drums in order to start the next basic track. When I lifted the faders to, assi- to listen to the drums, I found that I had inadvertently left the mic assigned to the track I had been using for the overdub, which I would placed to the far left of the stereo. As the other drum mic was in the middle, it spread the sound to the left. So I wonder what would happen if I put them left and right and made the small adjustment of pointing the floor tom-tom mic at the snare, making the two mics equidistant from it. The sound- result sounded enormous with a completely dis- different perspective that stereo brings. So he basically, he it, he figures out how to record drums in stereo on their own tracks. Great. That's it. Yes. But it's I something think that I, people I think I didn't that. do. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, well, as I was telling at the beginning of this uh, epi- episode, it's just even in that, it's interesting talking about how like everything that he's trying to do, he's doing at the bare limitations of the technology. Like the mm-hmm. idea that you would record all the tracks of the drum and then mix it all down. Yeah. And then look at the number of tracks that you have left and say, well, shit, I still want to get an acoustic guitar on this. So I guess we'll just put it on top of the drums. Right. Yeah. Or like just like mixing drums and bass on the same track. Doesn't seem, um, doesn't seem nice to those poor drums. It's what they're trying Uh, to shine. It doesn't make, it doesn't seem nice to the poor bass, which I think deserves its own track. Chris, Chris speaks for the bass. I speak for the bass. You are the bass I'm, Lorax. I'm the bass Lorax. The, lo- the Lorax. Ah! <laughs> um, also, Glenn Johns has to sneak this in. There are all kinds of representations of my recording method on YouTube claiming to be my version. None of these are really accurate. Contrary to popular belief, I've never used a tape measure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, He's like, it. you idiots. Uh, YouTube music nerds. How dare you? Clearly, he uh, took took the SM forty eight uh, and took it exactly f- uh, fifty six centimeters from the back rim of the floor. Tom pointed at an angle of fifty seven. No, I just kind of kind of put it where where I thought it would be good. That's literally what he says. <laughs> I just like you know did some minor adjustments to, for what would sound best. Ding dong. Um, so he's he, he didn't do speaking just while we're on Led Zeppelin and drums. Yes, he didn't do. When the levy breaks, did he? he didn't do Led Zeppelin four? I don't did he? think so. Because that's the other Led Zeppelin drum story I've known, which is yes. that the drums from that were recorded. Were the drum set was put at the bottom of a grain silo, and the mics were put at the top, which is why that fucking drum set sounds like a thunderbolt. Got it. Uh, coming in. Um, Jimmy you know Page that, produced I, that that album. Who did? Jimmy Page. Oh, yes. Yeah, you know that iconic sound that's been sampled in a million things. God, did Bright Eyes sample that? Uh, certainly <laughs> in, the Beastie Boys did. In Lover, I Don't Have to Love? That sounds familiar. Yikes. Um, anyway, he Glenn's getting himself a little reputation. He gets hey, a, Led Zeppelin 1. Good album. Good album. Uh, look, I, I don't think it's cliche to say this. Led Zeppelin 1. Good album. It's good. Two thumbs up. Uh, in 1969... <laughs> Paul McCartney calls gives gives Glenn a call and Glenn thinks he's someone pretending to be Paul McCartney <laughs> which I wonder does that happen every time Paul McCartney calls someone he's never talked to before 
You're putting me on, mate. Like, <laughs> it's not no, Paul it's really, <laughs> it's really me. It's really Paul. It's it's Paul. <laughs> no, that sounds like a bad Paul impersonation. No, I promise my real voice is just that silly. <laughs> um. So once he actually gets him on the phone, uh, he, just he hangs up repeatedly. Yes. So he he's called in because George Martin, their longtime producer, mm-hmm. is on the outs with them, and they need a producer to help record a live show. Um, they want to do some kind of like stunt live show. Oh, like perhaps on some kind of roof or something? Maybe. Um, originally, Paul had the idea to take a cruise ship full of Beatles fans to an ancient open air amphitheater somewhere in Tunisia and put the show on there. <laughs> Trap. And then while the show is on, slowly wall over the entrance, trapping them, completing the <laughs> blasphemous ritual that the Beatles were set out to accomplish. <laughs> It's like the cask of Amontillado, but with the Beatles. Yes. <laughs> What's that? Someday I will complete the death ritual. Someday I will complete the death ritual. And bring, us, bring Satan back to Earth. <laughs> Until then, it's one more night singing Hey June. <laughs> uh, the, this idea did not go down terribly well with the others, particularly Ringo, <laughs> whose, Who main, not con- want to complete the whose death main concern seemed to be what the food would be like. <laughs> Be like Tunisia. I don't know, man. Do they have chips there? Ringo, as always, the normiest beetle. Yeah, extremely. Ringo's the audience surrogate of the Beatles. Well, how will the food be in mm. your ancient Tunisian amphitheater? Hey, man. If you're on a also, you know, given the constant cruise news of just like things going horribly wrong on cruises. Putting a bunch of Beatles fans on a cruise might not be an amazing idea. It yeah. sounds incredible. This sounds like a. Also, uh, like most Beatles projects that failed to materialize, like mm. a total disaster that they somehow avoided to give them the perfect career. Yes. Like if the Beatles had actually done Lord of the Rings as the Four Hobbits, that sounds like it, in 1968 or whatever, when that was floated, that yeah. sounds like a total disaster. Uh, but they didn't do it. And so they don't have, hey, the Beatles, the world's perfect band, except that one ridiculous movie they made. Yeah. Saying saying no is important. Yes. Or at least one person saying no because they were not Concerned sure about the what the food quality is going to be like. I bet Always have a healthy fear dope. of listeria too, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he kind of starts, he, he's recording some random material with the Beatles. Uh, the cruise is obviously shot down. Eventually they do the... Uh, they do the roof show mm-hmm. and which Glenn, I guess, at least engineers set it up. Um, he, I so, just imagining him muttering on this roof. God, didn't God damn all this wind up here. So much yeah. Interference. He seems to not be a huge fan of, uh, like he did. He engineered, get your yaya's out the Rolling mm-hmm. Stones live album. And he just always seems to be like, no, like I told them to use smaller amps because like the sound in the in the place, like the larger amps would just blow it out completely and no one <laughs> listened to me. Why won't you listen to the producer? I do know about sound. I do. I'm a sound man. It says so on the book. It says on the book that I won't write for 35 years. Um, he So he starts doing these like random projects. He worked with, he's in the booth recording. It's John Lennon. Keith Richards, I almost said John Legend. Je- John Legend, John Lennon, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, and Mitch Mitchell for something mm-hmm. called Rock and Roll Circus. Yes. Are you familiar oh, with yeah. this? Okay. Uh, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tall is all over that. Rock and Roll Circus is a really cool album. Okay. Uh, it's a live 
So it was a. Co- it looks like it was a concert that a live televised concert that also has set up produced parts of it. You mm-hmm. can watch it on DVD. It's a great watch. There's like sets. It's very very late sixties British rock. Got it. Um, but I I got into it because of my longtime fandom of Jethro Tull and Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull do a few uh, numbers on it. As is like Taj Mahal. Um, a few others. Let's play the Jethro Tall number off of it. The song also rules. Um, God, well, I don't. Any way to I can to talk about Jethro Tall on this uh, show, I will take up because I don't think that those guys have a memoir. And Jethro Tall is a band is one of those bands like Devo mm-hmm. that is mostly a joke to people, but is actually one of the best bands ever. Great. But anyway, he produced all this. He, I don't know if they were did some like non live recording, and he was involved in the engineering. He was in the room. In the circus tent. That in this the was all yeah, in. he was in the tent where it happened. Yeah, he was in the tent control booth. Yes. Uh, fiddling with the tent knobs. Yes. More stripes, bigger top. Bigger top, smaller top. Never smaller. <laughs> Called the big top for a reason. Death or Tall, very good. The so, Who do a, a crazy version of Quick One While He's Away. That's a really good YouTube video to watch is The Who's Quick One While, while He's Away. Got at, it. Uh, rock and Roll Circus because, you know, it's a very classic. They destroy their entire set while they're doing it. And also, it's a very good Who song. Okay. they were. He was recording with these folks at this time. I'm not sure if it was something for Rock and Roll Circus or just something ancillary. Yeah, yeah. And he said, all was going well until I heard this extraordinary noise like someone stepping on the cat. All of a sudden, a picture appeared of a small figure with a black back over its head with a mic cable disappearing into it. It turned out to be Yoko. <laughs> so she like he was always just baffled by her, like crashing the everything John Lennon was doing <laughs> and him just not like John Lennon was cool with it. Yes. He's like, yeah, this is great. I love Yoko and she should do everything that I do. Put a bag over her head, scream into a microphone inside of it. That's great. And I'm sure the, more more the, the proper audio engineer of him was being like, you're ruining the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> Stop chewing it. Um, she also, when he would go to like band meetings, she would sit on John Lennon's lap and answer for him when someone else directed a question at John Lennon. Wow. Um, shit. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to comment. I don't think I have a relevant opinion about yeah, John I, I don't have a fully formed opinion about John and Yoko. Uh, it's, but it's complicated. that, but that is a classic, uh, Guy's a goy- annoying girlfriend move. Yeah, <laughs> like no, an all time an all time classic. But like, no one wants that. You yes. don't when you ask someone a question, you don't want the girlfriend perched on their knee to answer for them. You yeah. want the answer. Nor would I want a guy to answer for his girlfriend. Or and you know, if I ask you a question, I want you to answer it. Answer me. Um, he he ends up actually engineering some of the Let It Be sessions. But after the group broke up, John gave the tapes to Phil Spector, who puked all over them, turning the album into the most syrupy load of bullshit I've ever heard. <laughs> okay, so I guess we have covered another notorious producer. Yes. Uh, oh, right. right, right I would right. like Glenn Johns and uh, Phil Spector to get into a fist fight. Yeah. Because I have a feeling Glenn Johns would beat the shit out of him. I think there's no love lost between those yes. two. Um, who puked all over them, turning them into a syrupy load of bullshit. A syrupy load of bullshit. All right. Well, shall we hear? I don't. I don't know what he, how he feels about Phil Spector's Christmas carols, but as a, <laughs> as an Anglican church boy, probably not positively. That's probably true. 
Um, yeah, do we want to listen uh, to a here's choice a little, nugget? Like, across the universe. I'm sure it's like those, those chorusy O's and A's in the background. I feel like that's the kind of stuff that you would be opposed to. Okay, so the way this happened, I think George Martin started working on it, and then Glenn Johns got pulled in for some of it, and then Phil Spector finished, Phil it, Spector finished it. That he is- gets the final producer credit, but I think some of the actual good stuff might have been George Martin. Uh, I'm just reading the the reaction by the band to Phil Spector's production. Yeah. Paul McCartney hated Phil Spector's contributions, especially the long and winding road. Phil Spector made one good song. Yes. And that's be my baby. Mm -hmm. And every other thing that he did, his Ramones albums suck too. (laughs) Fuck Phil Spector. That guy is such a fucking shit creep. I hate that guy. You know, overrated. Oh, overrated. Overrated. Extremely overrated. Yeah. Fuck you, Uh, Phil Spector. Tired. Phil Spector. Wired. Ronnie Spector. <laughs> yes. Um, but John Lennon said that uh, of Phil Spector, he was given the shittiest load of badly recorded shit with a lousy feeling to it ever, and he made something of it. Um, when EMI informed George Martin that he would not get a production credit because Spector produced the final version, he commented, I produced the original, and what you should do is have a credit saying, produced by George Martin, overproduced by Phil Spector. <laughs> nice. I, I gotta say that the tech nerd in, in me is always extremely here for, uh, like, producer shade. Producer shade? Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. So it sounds like both both George Martin and uh, that is Johns can agree. That is a, a real full house of legendary late 60s producers. Uh with their hands all over this album. Yes. Crowded room. Crowded room. Okay, but enough about the 60s. Blah. Ew. 70s happen. 70s. We're in. 70s. Polyester. They came bell after bottoms, the 60s. New innovations in recording technologies. It's funny you say this. Uh, Glenn, uh, he is targeted at customs when he travels to America in the early 70s because he's wearing a suede fringe jacket. <laughs> Uh, this is enough to, so Glenn's like, he walks know. through a motion, um, a, a metal detector like thing. And just the lights on the other side of it, uh, light up going, uh, hippie, 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 hippie. <laughs> alert, um, big lit up sign. He's like, he's a square, but he dresses in like cool guy camouflage. Yeah. And that's the guy you pull over. Yes. Who, uh, is, who's the guy who is sweating bullets through his polyester, uh, suede fringe suit because he can't really hack it. Yes. Um, he, that guy's up to something. He's targeted for dressing like a, a, a long-haired rock and roller, and he is bringing a bunch of beetle boots, like Cuban-heeled beetle boots, okay. to, into the country to his fr- like friend. Like he's essentially just like gifting he's, them. He's running boots, and this customs agent is so ornery that he has to tap the heels of every pair of beetle boots in order to make sure that there's not like hidden contraband in them. It's also it's funny. Very at, annoyed at this time that. Like the hidden contraband would be like an eighth of pot instead of the kind of contraband that we would assume now would be actually dangerous. Yeah. Like illegal opioids. Right. Oh, God. Imagine. Yeah. No, it's always for like a a stray joint that someone forgot in the pocket of their fringed pants. One dry toothpick spliff. (laughs) You're going to jail for 15 to 20. Yes. 
Um, oh, it's so many lives ruined because of marijuana. <laughs> it's awful. Um, he when you know when he's in America, he meets Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. I, I don't know if you know about this, but Bob Dylan wanted to make an album with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, which would be like just a. a we, orgy. We, it'll be the best band of all time. We'll call it. The Rolling Stones Beatles. <laughs> the Beatles Stones. The actually. Bobble the Bobble the Bobble Stones. This Bobble Stones. Uh it was ne- it was never to be, unfortunately. Or fortunately, maybe that's another another bad decision that the Beatles avoided. Yeah, yeah let's get <laughs> let's get a dozen of the most powerhouse uh creative and e- egos in the room at the same time and assume that something is going to uh, good is going to come out of it. Yes. Um, he engineers a session with um, blues legend Howlin' Wolf and sure. a bunch of like current, you know, blues thieves, essentially like white, <laughs> white blues thieves like Eric Clapton, mm-hmm. um, which is like that sounds like a crazy session. But he says, I'm embarrassed to admit that I did not understand a great deal of what Howlin' Wolf said as he had an almost unintelligible accent. I'm like. Maybe it would be better to call it impenetrable accent. Well, yeah. I guess Eric Clapton also expressed discomfort of being like, I feel like this whole session is setting me up to compete with the guy who helped invent like modern blues. And I really don't know what I'm supposed to do other than just like keep trying to play better than him or like play something different. Like, what do you want from me? It seemed awkward. I think that maybe Eric Clapton is is having to confront is is what he's done. What he's done. Yes. The reality of uh yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I I took this guy's whole shtick and now he's just doing it back to me better. Right. <laughs> can we not can we not be side by side? Let me just do this over here. Yes. Do that. You can do that over there. Um he works with Neil Young on a couple songs from Harvest. I know oh, you yeah. like Neil Young. I do like Neil Young. What pull do you up, do? Uh, a man needs a maid. Does a man need a maid, though? There's a shadow running through my days. So he only produced one song off, or a few songs off this album? Yeah, just just a handful. That's interesting because this album has such a unified sound to it. Yeah. You know? Maybe that's a skill of his that he can sort of pinch hit and And like get in and get it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you know Heart of Gold. Sounds very. I know your know. version of it. <laughs> well, you've heard that song. You know, it, it sounds very much. I've only heard you sing it. Okay, great. I don't know. Well, there's a song called <laughs> Heart of Gold. Neil, Neil Young, who is she? Uh, you, there's a song called Heart of Gold. It's very good. Uh, that involves Neil Young uh, crooning, longing lyrics over solo piano for a long time. And then there's a French horn solo. You gotta have it. Oh, here's some of that. Ooh. But it's still very similar, you know. It's yeah. the first, it starts with the song just sung over solo piano, and then evolves into a more musical mm-hmm. moment. Also, I feel like all these like strings and more classical elements are kind of Glenn Johnson's bread and butter from these olden days. Yeah, and likes YBC. that Anglican church music. Yeah. Um, he also engineers who's next with the who. And he says, I remember my hair being parted by what was coming out of the speakers. <laughs> so that's pretty good. I think the who is another one of those bands that he's like, they were just so good. And I was trying to 
just get capture their he did this whole album uh yes that's interesting because there's a lot going on production wise in this Mm -hmm. album a lot of pete townsend like jury rigging his own synthesizers out of you know calypso presets from organs available like consumer organs at the time and then running them through various filters and processors i was just watching a youtube video about it that i can't find at the time about how you have to like go in and unscrew various limiters of knobs of old Lowry organs to uh, recreate some of these sounds, especially in like Bob O'Reilly and won't get pulled again. So it's like a really complicated feat of sonic experimentation and equipment yeah. experimentation going on with Townsend himself. And then I also assume John's and he's just figuring out how to like get capture it, the sounds get that, down. that uh, Townsend's creating. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, he he he's kind of like I don't get why the Who aren't referenced more as like one of the main architects of like modern rock and roll. Yeah, because I I do don't think they get quite the same due as uh like Rolling Stones, the Beatles. Yeah, I mean they I feel like they pushed tech. Well, I, I feel like that's a very producers thing mm-hmm. because they pushed. Uh, the tech and the the size and the scope of, and of yeah, the just narrative too. Yeah, yeah. Like I feel like he's clearly dealt with some people who want to make concept albums and have no idea how to actually do it, like yeah. the Steve Miller Band, and like these people actually made a, a good concept album. Well, it also seems like every album after the Who's first album was meant to be a concept album that uh, they never quite <laughs> got around to fully con- conceptualizing. Yeah. Um, also, uh, who's next? Keith Moon suggested the album should be called All Their Records because when <laughs> kids would go to the record store and ask for, uh, they would ask for All the Records by The Who. <laughs> and just, uh, I love stuff like that. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Glenn asked Keith Moon to stop drinking so much because it's affecting his playing. Yes. And it's making him bad at recording. And Keith is like, you smoke 60 cigarettes a day. Like, you smoke all the time. If you quit cigarettes, I'll quit drinking. And Glenn Johns stops smoking cigarettes cold. And needless to say, Keith Moon doesn't do anything <laughs> drinking related. But is that not the most Glenn Johns thing ever? Yes. Uh, yes, I will do anything for the sound of this record. Well, and just, just cold being turkey like, quitting 60 oh, cigarettes like, a band. You a cha- day. You're challenging me to do this. Like, yeah. I'll do I'll I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Um. Also, there's a pool, like an anecdote where uh, Keith Moon jumps into someone's pool unannounced and knocks over uh, two gardeners who can't swim. Oh, no. Uh, He he sounds like he was very talented, but like a little bit out of control. Yes. Uh, And then I think Glenn's wife like dumps uh, Keith Moon's suit in the pool or something like it's a whole there's a lot of Keith lot of, Moon pool stories. Yes. Um, he seems to, there's something in the, makes him go wild. When he sees that sparkling blue of a backyard pool. <laughs> he just goes, goes crazy. Um, he, around this, in the seventies, uh, Glenn almost turns down an offer from David Geffen to produce this, uh, hot new band coming up called the Eagles. <laughs> um, and then he, so he sees them and, isn't really impressed. He's just kind of like, I don't really think there's anything here. And then he, I mean, same the, well, right. Other than, well, sure. other than hotel California. And then David Geffen is like, no, 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 come back. Like see them play more stuff. And they play the song. Most of us are sad. 
And then Glenn Johns loves them. He's like, oh, I, I totally get it. But he, he says, he's like, I hate these situations when it's always like, oh, this big time producer is coming to hear you guys play. Like he traveled all the way from London and you have to, you know, do your best. He's like, I hate situations like that because it never like, it's never really impressive. And I hate being the cause of that pressure. Yes. Um, which is funny because hearing it from the band's point of view, it's always just like, oh my God. The cigar, the cigar glowing in the, yeah, in the in audience. The dark. The, yes. The Glenn Johns is going to be here. And meanwhile, he's like, oh, I just, I just hope that they sound okay. Yeah. I hate, I hate making people feel uh, stressed. Yes. Because it makes them sound bad. I've been shadows of myself. I get like I get it. I get it. Cool. I get the Eagles thing. I, I like to relax like any like any other red-blooded American boy and girl. Yes. I like to chill, but um I don't think they really uh honk my bobo. Yeah, they don't really honk your bobo. They don't really honk my bobo either. Makes me sleepy. <laughs> yeah, I mean I it's just hard for me to imagine Somebody who's just worked on Who's Next and her and literally engineered mm-hmm. Won't Get Fooled Again. Yes. Just come into a room and hear a few songs and hear a song like this and be like, this, motherfucking this, this is what I want. Yeah. Because I do think he appreciates. I'm so hyped for most of us are sad. Ah. <laughs> I, do, I do think he appreciates like smooth harmonies and rich yeah. uh, melodic textures, but I also think he's got. He likes it when it's done in the context of like mind blowing hard rock music. Ideally, like the the best marriage of that is yeah. in like a good Rolling Stones record or a good yeah. Who record. Uh, this would be a good anthem for Twitter. Uh, uh, most of us are sad. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Oh man. Um. So yeah, he he produces the Eagles. For a little bit, um, their first couple of albums don't do great commercially, and uh, Glenn complains: if a record is successful, it is uh, it is down to the artist. If not, it's down to the producer, <laughs> which I think must be again a classic producer's gripe. The producer's lament. Yes, so just being like, you know, you only love me when when. Uh, hey, I mean that is well. that is the sad uh, truth, the sad suffering of a producer is that when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. You can see what the producer has done. And when things go right, you don't notice that anything's been done at all. Yep. That's tragic. Uh, also, he, I don't think he loves like working with the Eagles specifically because he complains that um, the bassist, Randy Meisner, told Glenn that uh, when he heard an Eagles song on a radio station with poor reception and interference with the signal, it did not sound good ah! and was trying to blame it on Glenn. <laughs> As in, like, I don't like. It doesn't sound good when it's all crackly and and uh, crinkly. Glenn is just like is holding his temples, being like, "Okay, Randy. So what the radio station does is it takes the song that I produced and it it puts it into radio waves that then your car stereo needs, and in between the broadcast and the that's when the interference. It's not the tape itself, you see." Nah, when I put it in my, I turn my car on and there were crackles in the. Sounds bad. It just sounds. But can, can you, you fix, fix that? It? <laughs> can you turn down the crackles on the next master. No, see, I didn't. I didn't do that, Randy. 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 God damn it, Randy. 
You uh, have the record at your house. Does it sound like that? Right. Do, do me a favor. Play it at your home and see what happens. I, I sent one there. to you. I sent it with a note that says, Randy, all the best. Glenn, did you not open my gift? Whatever, man. Just next time, just like keep it in mind. I'm just saying. Just keep it in mind. I will not keep it in mind. I am the producer. I am the sound man. I am the sound man. I am the sound man. Uh, he also stops working with the Rolling Stones pretty much for good after they have like a little spat during a recording session for black and blue. <laughs> um, it's just funny that he's not like a lifelong. I think, I think it's honestly just evidence that working with musicians over the long haul is stressful. Yes. And hard and difficult, a hard, just a difficult interpersonal experience as well as a professional one. And, it takes enough for bands to stay together that I imagine that the folks that they hired to do all the other stuff besides be in the band. Yes. It just must have even more friction. So I feel like I feel empathetic toward Glenn Johns for not being able to necessarily maintain these things over the course of his entire yes, life. Yes, absolutely. Uh, especially when you get the ego of a, a band 10 years, a decade into their massive success mm-hmm. going on. Yes. Um, he... So, like, you know, as the 70s melt slowly and sensuously into the 80s, mm-hmm. his, his he kind of it's not like he's working with a lot of like fresh new people. It's mm-hmm. more like he's continuing to bolster the the legacies of people who yes. hit it in the 60s and 70s, which that's fine. Um, we we did say in the intro he has worked with Band of Horses. <laughs> um, I, I bet the Band of Horses was probably weirdly like stoked. Yes. That they got to work with him. Yes. I just feel like, yes, so much rich history. Um, is there anything else to to wrap uh, with this? Oh, it's funny. He says he expresses regret um, at, underestir- at underestimating Eric Clapton uh, because I guess when he worked with him in Eric's earlier days, he thought, I thought he was just another bloody white kid playing the blues. Um, but then he I'm works glad, with him I'm a lot he can, more. He sees through that early on. He, um, he produces... Uh, his album slow hand and then he works on like collaborations between him and Pete Townsend and he respects Eric Clapton as an actual artist and he says there's still an enormous portion of boot in my mouth as a result of my unbelievably blinkered opinionated and intolerant attitude Uh, (laughs) which I I like that he admits that he admits I've been blinkered he admits I mean he he definitely makes a point to say when he thinks he was right about things but he Mm -hmm. also repeatedly says I was wrong about and this I should have got. I shouldn't have ever discounted the Eagles like that. What a mistake that would have been. Yeah, that is absolutely the uh, tell of a wise man. He is, knows knows when wise. they were absolutely right and knows when they were wrong. Yeah. Um. He also manages to swallow his distaste for punk, and he produces combat rot for co- combat rot combat rock for the Clash. He oh, said, he I, does. I was not a fan of the Clash or for that many at or any other punk band that existed. <laughs> Glenn Johns is not a uh, holy not a shit punk man. Uh, that's amazing. So rock the Casbah, I believe. Yeah, I mean there are a, a billion uh, great uh, clips off this one. Um, well, not a billion. How about we go with this one, uh, which a younger generation, a newer generation might recognize from a reinvention of it. Mm. Mm. I didn't know that this was sampled. Straight to Hell by The Clash off Combat Rock, produced apparently by Glenn Johns. So good. This is uh, a now iconic sound. Man, do 
the Clash have anything that the, any of them written anything about it? Because I would love to talk about the Clash. The Clash rule. <laughs> anyway, um, apparently, uh, Mick Jones dated Viv Albertine, who who has we have a, in the hopper, a memoir, right? Yes. Close, close, close. Music, music, music. Boys, boys, boys. Uh, which we'll definitely, definitely cover. get to eventually. Yes. Great. Um, anyway, this album sounds great. The Clash are the Clash. They do good songs. Yeah, I like. That's my, that's my review of the Clash. They do a, good. A songs. good band that a good band with a good song. I just like that that Glenn swallows his uh, his pride. his pride and is like, I'll I'll produce these punkers. Yeah, but they got to play by my rules. Yeah. And he's like, just kidding. I like, got to be able to set up the microphones where I want to set them up. <laughs> Not where you punk kids set them up all willy-nilly, willy-nilly. wherever you want to go. Uh, you know, getting spit, gobs of spit all over the mics. Yes. That's not how I roll. Um, the book ends. Yes. With, as all books do, mostly. Yes. Um, unless you are E.L. James of the Fifty Shades trilogy and you, just, you just keep, keep writing books. writing it. As different characters. Yes. Um, the book ends with an elegy for the musical production quality of your... Okay. Um... I'm, I was expecting it. He said, recorded music has been reduced to run, to ones and zeros. I wonder where it will all lead to. Things cannot stand still. Maybe there will be another huge shakeup with the teenagers of today taking the industry by the scruff of the neck and reinventing it. I feel like that's happening. I don't think it's necessarily a sound quality thing. No, but also maybe. Maybe. Uh, we. When was this book written? 2014. 2014? Yeah. I mean, we're definitely on the other end of the loudness wars mm-hmm. in one sense. And I think people have a better respect for, you know, we're now in like the third decade of digital audio production. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that loudness war stuff, the the people that like old school producers, the thing that old school producers really lamented as a downfall, a permanent downfall of the quality mm. of music production. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like that was dealt with as we realized how the new tools that we had invented could work. Yes. I think it's easier than ever for a young person, for an amateur to have a full and complete understanding of what it means to produce sound and music. Uh, yes. See myself though. I'm always striving to learn more and do not <laughs> consider myself uh, a, a expert producer on, on any level. Yes. Um, but I don't know. I think that a guy like Lynn would be happy to, should be happy to see so many people on YouTube posting videos of trying to replicate his sound and trying to speak about it as not only like a reverent reproduction of, you know, like an artwork or something, Mm -hmm. but as to why he would want to do that. And that there is a rich audience for YouTube videos of mic setups from recording sessions from 50 years ago, because people want to understand that kind of stuff. You are so right. I think he would be pleased he should be pleased because he, he, should does, be he pleased. clearly knows that the, these things exist because he mentioned them. Daddy, Daddy knows best, as, yeah, yeah. as Glenn would probably not yeah. say. Um, but yes, and I just think that the overall idea of reinventing the record industry by it seems like the current trend, we might just kind of do away with it completely. Um, and as and an it's independent all producer, rap all the time, all there's rap. one genre SoundCloud rap. Yeah, great. Shout out to to little little perps and little peeps or all the all the little rest in power rest in power little peep um yeah no I think I think that he can't hate on that because he was the product of a shakeup mm-hmm. um so you got to keep 
having the revolution happen. Otherwise, shit gets real boring. As not a head, were you compelled by the tech stuff, the producerial stuff? In yeah, here? yeah, I was. I think I was more compelled by his little like anecdotes of just working with these mm-hmm. hooligans and his general. Uh, uh, grumpy exasperated professional demeanor yes i i also vibe with him on just like the a level of like producing of like telling people what to do and also being told what to do Mm -hmm. and the 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 gentle balance between preserving the art you're trying to make while also being in charge because certainly something i struggle with my in my job yes so yes it is exhilarating and frustrating to be at the controls while a creative thing is happening mm-hmm. uh, in front of you. Yes. I think that we both know. <laughs> um, he leaves some advice to people, uh, just a, a little nugget, a little kernel. He says, if you ever feel a bit low or feel that life has become a little mundane, join a choir. I guarantee that it will lift your spirits. Who knows what it will lead to? Look what happened to me. Ah, yeah. You might be become a legendary producer or just, like singing. Just get the thrill of singing with a bunch of people. The thrill of singing. Uh, I like this one. This is a good, like, family-friendly. Yes. Uh, uh, and introducing. It's incredibly family-friendly. There's yes. a lot a lot less torture. There's some minor uh, 1960s non-race-motivated cop violence. <laughs> which is, you know, the family-friendly kind of cop violence. Yeah, or just, you know, it's it's less fraught, but still, still obnoxious. There's some substance use, but our protagonist abstains. He only observes. He gets to wear the fun costumes of the times, like the fringe jackets and beetle boots. Nobody uh, dies. Um, Nobody really gets exploited. Well, people, that's the thing is people die, but he, not him, you know, Keith, Keith moon does. uh, Brian Jones, like the, the, the road to rock and roll heaven is littered with bodies, but not Glenn Johns's. He's yes. Uh, people our protagonist doesn't die or get exploited <laughs> yes uh or uh, he, do- he, he doesn't get exploited which is so funny because i feel like he he's on the other end of it's not like he is the man but he is he's paid pretty i think standardly for what he does here's it's a- not like he's held on on the string by uh, an evil sexually sadistic manager who pays you ten dollars a day to get a hamburger here is Another takeaway that I think we'd both relate to mm-hmm. that is very uh, dry and workmanlike, but talent is explosively propulsive, but being uh, valued for your technical knowledge mm-hmm. is much more reliable Yes, and able to get you out of exploitation. Yes. If you literally know something that other people don't. Don't know. Yeah, if yeah. you're if you're got the the hand on the knobs. Yes, got one hand in my pocket and the other one, one twiddling the knob. And on that note, I think we can close the book on Glenn Johns. Though I'm sure we'll run into him again uh, tangentially, as he's touched so so many things. Yes, uh, throughout the history of music, uh, that's one of my favorite things we've come across. This is now our 20th episode doing these is uh, when we run into other things from books that intersect with the with previous books. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, this guy was there, unless yes. it's Phil Spector, in it's which case uh, it just makes me want to punch him. Yeah. Go back, go back in time and punch him. We'll probably keep seeing him and keep, yeah, he'll keep popping like, up. Oh, this creep again. Yeah. Uh, but ending it on, on the high note of being able to run run into old friends 
uh, and recall their experiences. Yes. Uh, so uh, cheers to all our old friends and jeers to Phil Spector. Fuck you, Phil Spector. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> man. And thanks for listening. We'll be back in two more weeks with another episode. We actually have this one already lined up. We're going to have a special guest uh we're going to have a special book that deviates a little from uh, our our normal bread and butter here but should be a good one so still words about music still words about music uh so keep an eye out for that and in the meantime you can follow us on twitter at and intro pod or send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com and our soundcloud is at always at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod Thank you. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and you should rate and review us there too, but only positive vibes. Please. On the page. Please. You can follow me on at say what again. You can follow me uh, at Miss Molly Mary on the Twitters. And uh, you know what? At Molly Mary O'Brien on Instagram. Sure. Get some more Instagram follows. What's that? What's that? Uh, if you that made that it this far, life? we're just going to keep pl- pl- uh, plugging forever. That portrait mode, though. That portrait mode, though. Mm. Uh, well, we'll see you again in two weeks on And Intro. Producing. <laughs>